From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. The Swamp officially opened for the season last weekend, with the Gators easily dispatching UT Martin 45 to nothing. Now the road beckons, with the SCC opener leading the Orange and Blue up to Big Blue. On today's show, we'll recap the shutout in the Swamp, take a deeper look at some critical injuries, preview the matchup with Kentucky, discuss the release of the SEC basketball schedule, ponder the biggest sports circuses in the PAT, and remember the life of Neuron Ball. Then, junior safety Sean Davis stops by to chat about his ascension up the depth chart, how his unit is preparing for the Wildcats, and more. But first, after a week away from the gridiron, the Gators returned to action last weekend with a chance to work out some of the kinks from the opener against Miami. It certainly wasn't a surprise they won easily, but did they learn anything new about themselves in the process? That question was asked to Nick Saban after Alabama crushed New Mexico State, and it's the same one we posed to Scott and Chris to open this week's roundtable. Well, I think there's definitely some things to take away from it. I thought overall, all of these started slow. I think that they, you know, executed at a higher level than against Miami. They they moved in the right direction, Adam. And, you know, the, the whole talk after the Miami win was they won, but it wasn't as clean as they wanted it to be. They missed a lot of tackles. And, you know, I don't think you saw as near as many as those uh, factors uh, in the uh, win over UT Martin. And, you know, these games are always tricky to for a team because, you know, if you win, well, you're supposed to. If you blow them out like Florida did, but then if you lose or, or it's close, you're going to get piled on. And I think what the Gators did, they got piled on a little bit after meeting Miami, which uh, we talked about how odd that was considering, uh, you know, the, that matchup and what they had at stake. And so they avoided any of that by going out there. And, you know, Felipe Franks was excellent. Uh, if there was one kicking point, they still didn't get the running game on track maybe to where they wanted. Uh, I think that's something that they'll continue to work on and they will certainly have to have throughout the season. But I, I just took it as a nice warm-up for what's coming up, the start of the SEC. And I think listening to Dan Mullen this week, it sounds like they got a lot of what they wanted out of it, but the two key injuries. That was the biggest takeaway, probably. You know, you walk away from a game 45 nothing, but and people are saying, all right, what's going on with Kadarius Tony and what's going on with C.J. Henderson? So, it's comical to some. You see some of the social media response asking why they were playing. I mean, Kadarius Tony got hurt when it was 3 nothing. I think C.J. Henderson got hurt when maybe it was 10 nothing. Yeah, still um, close. But, I mean, at what point, just – speaking to that and I, Dan Mullen was even asked about it in his press conference on Monday what I mean where do you draw the line on that what starters are you picking that aren't going to play and what kind of hindsight do you have to know who's going to be injured what so do, do you sit the starting quarterback do you sit the starting uh, uh defensive end you know you, these guys come to college to play football and it doesn't matter who their opponent is uh you know you play them and to Scott's point the uh the goal of that game was to play a lot of guys obviously the goal of the game is to win and to win handily so you can play guys but Gators started rolling guys in and out of there pretty early on even though the score was only three nothing I was kind of surprised actually Mullen I think um there was a swing pass to Kyle Pitts 
on a on a third and I'll say five, and he was easily gonna get the first down, but he fell down. And Mullen instead of going for a fourth and five or fourth and four, kicked a field goal early on to make it three nothing. <laughs> Two weeks earlier against Miami, take the punt on a fourth from his own what twenty seven yard line or something like that on the first possession of the game. But eventually the the score and everything got to where it needed to be. It was seventeen nothing at halftime. Felipe Franks, I believe, was 15 to 16 with his only completion, came on a Hail Mary at the end of the half. Um, to Scott's point, yeah, you need to run the ball better. And you would have thought they would have come out, maybe would have done a little bit of mashing in the running game a little early on. But uh, give UT Martin credit. You don't want to give them credit for something like that. You want to be able to roll on them. But, uh, you know, they were up for the challenge early on. But now, uh, obviously, the takeaway is you don't have Kadarius Tony, you don't have C.J. Henderson, and now you're going in the Southeastern Conference opener on the road against a Kentucky team, which has some of the similar problems relative to injuries that Florida has, which I'm sure we'll talk to in a minute. But you're going on the road to open the SEC season against a team that beat you last year. So you have a lot of work to do. But this is this is why these guys come here. This is It's time to start playing football. And like Mullen said, he was really mad at the team at halftime. Correct, Scott? Yeah, he was. He was. Little woman. I think it showed in the second half, you know, but he had to turn the urgency level up. He didn't like what he saw in that regards. And um, they did turn it around. He even this week, you're going to have to turn it up more. But I tell you what, uh, he was so upset with them for the first half performance that uh, instead of running out of the locker room, he, he had them do their whole warm up all over again in the end. Zone. You know, we're starting over. And he may have dropped a word that you're not supposed to on the radio. On the radio, yeah. He did, yes. Yeah. So uh, I guess he got his point across. Um, the point. As the player said afterward, first half was not up to the Gator standard. The last two possessions may have been, or the last uh, two of the last three possessions that they scored on those really nice uh, uh, passes from Felipe. But um, uh, better in the second half, but it, obviously it's going to have to be a lot better in the Southeastern Conference play. Speaking of those injuries, that has been the uh, the driving force of the conversation around Gator Nation this week. The expectations of when do these guys come back, and if they aren't back, who's taking those roles? So what can you tell us about the expectations for their return and more importantly, in the whole next man up philosophy, who will replace them and, and make things run smoothly in their absence? Well, as coaches are wont to do, uh, Adam, I mean, Mullen didn't give a lot of specifics on timetables. Kadarius Tony, I mean, it's obvious he's going to be out at least a couple of games. I, I sense more just from his tone. They're a lot more optimistic in relation to um, CJ Henderson, but I still, yeah, I mean, he's very, very unlikely to play. Uh, against Kentucky, even though Dan Mullen did say he wanted to. Uh, I don't see that happening uh, just from you, – you just sense this stuff. You've been around the block a little bit. You, you kind of pick up on this stuff, Adam. Mm. Um, <laughs> in terms of what they have without him, Jacob Copeland was a guy that got a lot of attention for his performance uh, against UT Martin. Uh, you know, he's he's bigger than Kadarius Tony, but he did have a rush uh, for 15 yards in the game, caught three passes, 23 yards, first career touchdown. So instantly there's that speculation. Well, there you have the guy who can replace Tony, different kind of player, but still a dynamic player uh, offensively who we haven't seen a lot because he has, he's had his own injury problems since he's been at Florida. Uh, but I think, you know, when you look at those two guys, I mean, if you're going to lose both of your number ones, I mean, I think C.J. Henderson is certainly the more difficult replacement at this point. To me, he's the best player on the team. He's a top NFL prospect on the team. And the good news is that from what Mullen said, it doesn't sound like he's going to be out uh, as long as Tony. But at the same time, when he's returning, I don't know. But you lose him just like last year. You lost Marco Wilson on the other side in the second game of the season. 
40 years. So the good news is that it's not a season in the injury for CJ. Uh, so they're going to have to look at guys like Kyrie Elam, Chester Kimbrough, Jaden Hill, the three true freshman corners. Uh, those guys are basically, you know, how coaches like to say they're not freshmen anymore. Well, I think you can go ahead and say that for those three guys because here, as they enter the third game of the season in the SEC opener at Kentucky, those guys are a part of the rotation in the secondary, and they got a lot of work in the UT Martin game, and Kyrie Elam had his first career interception. I think Hill had a tackle late in the game, uh, and then Kimbrough got some uh, good work right from the start, as Chris mentioned earlier. It wasn't like these guys came in you know, in the fourth quarter once the game was already out of hand. They were in there when it was 3 nothing, 10 nothing, and uh, that's, just, that's just where they are. I mean, it, when you look at Florida's secondary right now, Besides cornerbacks, there are at least some good news on the way. It looks like, you know, Amari Bernie and, and Jawan Taylor will be back from injuries. They missed the UT Martin game. But a cornerback right now, that tandem that the Gators have been wanting to pair together ever since they were both true freshmen a couple of years ago and came onto the stage and started to shine, Marco Wilson and C.J. Henderson. Unfortunately, like last year, it looks like we're going to still have to wait to see those guys together for a long stretch with now Henderson out. You know, much has been made of uh, some of the challenges Florida has in the secondary due to a variety of reasons, especially once the year started. You had some guys that weren't able to play for not living up to Gator standard. You had transfers toward the beginning of the year, and then you have injuries that set in as well. And, and one guy who seems to have been the, the beneficiary of that is Sean Davis, who we're talking to uh, later on in this show. And I guess, could you guys just talk about what he's brought to the secondary in terms of a guy who initially didn't really click? with this program, but then a new staff came in and his fortunes sort of changed with that. Well, he's a classic case, Adam. You know, he came into a, a secondary that was pretty talented and he, he had trouble getting his way onto the field like a lot of young players do. Uh, but he has gotten better each and every year. He's always been a, a physical presence back there at safety. He's making more plays. He's showing up more on, on the field and I think uh, the reason that you're, you know, we're talking about him right now is because he, he's coming off a good game. He had a, a good start of the season against Miami, and they're going to be counting on him more and more. But, you know, they were without Brad Stewart the first couple of games. Uh, Donovan Steiner and Jawan Taylor started against Miami, but Taylor was unavailable against UT Martin. So that even gave Davis more time. And he's a guy that, you know, if, if you produce under Todd Grantham, one thing about Todd Grantham, he runs a lot of players in and out. That's part of the plan. They're very aggressive. And I just think that Grantham's arrival – and Davis' style of play, uh, it's been a good marriage uh, because it's got Davis on the field more and he's starting to make more plays. And in return, Grantham's putting him out there more. So this week is the start of SEC play, as you guys noted, and it is Kentucky, which normally uh, in the past has not been that much of a cause for concern because Florida won 31 years in a row against the Wildcats. That was snapped last year in the swamp. Uh, this time, I think everyone's looking at Kentucky a little bit differently. So can you guys just talk about the challenge of going to Kentucky in this instance where you've got some injury concerns and it's not quite the automatic W that it had been in the past? Yeah, and, and Kentucky obviously has injury concerns also, as I referenced earlier. They lost uh, quarterback Terry Wilson, who came here last year and was awfully efficient. And he was 11 of 16 for 151 yards and a touchdown, but he also rushed 10 times for uh, 105 yards. And that paired with Benny Snell, who just gashed the Gators for well over 170 yards in that game. The, Kentucky had 303 yards rushing in that game. And uh, if, if I recall, the sky was falling on the Florida defense 
uh, at that point. And Dan Mullen uh, and Todd Grantham fixed a lot of things from that game. Um, there were injuries from that. David Reese, I don't believe, played in that game. And nope. I think uh, and maybe a good example of what we're, talk- what we're talking about now. Other guys had to play or what have you. But now you go on the road. Two years ago, Florida really struggled up there, if you recall. It was one of Felipe Franks' first game. And it took uh, Kentucky's uh, defensive backs uh, to decide not to cover First Tyree Cleveland, I think, in the first half. And then Freddie Swain with, what was it, 16 seconds left in the game? 36 right. seconds. Yeah. Uh, just left him wide open in the corner of the zone for a, a Luke Del Rio touchdown. And that's how Florida escaped out of Kentucky. So the storyline out of Lexington will be going to a different quarterback now. Get this name right. It's Sawyer Smith. He's a Floridian. This guy uh, is a transfer from Troy. He started half the season last year at Troy. He's a grad transfer who's only a junior by eligibility, so he graduated earlier. Um, but he completed 63% of his passes, almost 1,700 yards, 14 touchdowns last year, and helped lead the Trojans to the Dollar General Bowl, where he was MVP in a win over Buffalo, 42-32. And get these numbers in that game, 320 yards passing, 191 yards rushing. Mm. And accounted for uh, five touchdowns uh, in that game. So uh, you have to be aware of the guy. And, and what was interesting, listening to Mullen talking about, you know, they got to go back and look at some Troy tape on the guy because they only got nine passes worth of uh, Kentucky tape on him. So uh, they were doing their diligence down there in the video side because uh, there's an unknown element to what this guy can do. And they'll have to look at how he played at Troy, how to look at what he did in the brief time he was in there uh, against Eastern Michigan. Uh, Kentucky won that game, I believe, 38-17. He's got a pocket element to him because obviously he can sit back there and pick guys apart if he's throwing for 300 yards uh, at Troy. But also if he's rushing for 190 yards in a bowl game, uh, you're obviously going to have to put a spy on him and honor what he can do out of the pocket. Yeah, you know, when you think about Kentucky for the last year, I mean, Chris hit it on the Head. I mean, what Gator fans remember is that 31-game losing streak ending. But, you know, Dan Mullen said in retrospect, you know, that loss, he learned a lot about his team. That's when he realized some roles, what guys were good at, what they were. And, you know, the Gators went 9-2 and two after that game. So, uh, at the time, yes, it was a, you know, one of those disguise-falling losses. Uh, it was going to be a long year for the Gators. And yet they used it as a positive. And I think that, you know, Felipe Frank said it best. It was an eye opener. You know, I don't know if it was they got complacent against Kentucky. I don't know if they were just not sure, not comfortable under the new coaching staff yet. Whatever it was, uh, they didn't play their best. I mean, hey, man, Benny Snell Jr., that guy was great that night in the swamp. So, you, you know, Kentucky earned the win. And obviously we saw from Kentucky. They were a pretty good team last year. What finished ten and three? Uh, interesting note: they've won twelve out of their last fifteen games with Terry Wilson at quarterback. The only other SEC team with that good of a run is Alabama, at fourteen and one. So yeah, this is a Kentucky team that's a good team. They are making a big transition here early in the year uh, with the change of quarterbacks. But as as Chris said, Smith uh, is a guy who's been there, done that, and I think the Gators understand that again. No time to get complacent. They got to go up there and uh, try to win an SEC game on the road, which no, is never easy. Yeah, the coaches will sell this guy as uh, it's very capable. Joe Montana. Yeah, 
while we are obviously knee-deep in football, Chris always has a toe in the basketball waters because there's always news coming out of there as well. And uh, Chris, this week we saw the, the release of the SEC schedule, which maybe has a little more fanfare now than years past because Florida is just getting so much hype. I mean, there's early projections of national writers saying Florida's a Final Four team. Kerry Blackshear is a Player of the Year candidate. So can you talk about the SEC schedule and how it kind of fits into that narrative? Florida's going to play a bunch of night games, which tells me that you know the ESPN folks want them on at night. Uh, they open the season January 4th uh, against Alabama at home. They close the season March 7th at home on national TV on CBS against, guess who, Kentucky Wildcats? Not Vanderbilt. Huh? <laughs> Not Vanderbilt, okay. yeah. And in, in between, we talked about a few weeks ago. I mean, we've known for a couple months, I think, that the the home and away non-regular opponents were, were LSU and Ole Miss to go, obviously, with uh, Kentucky, Georgia, and Vanderbilt. But um, now we got a little clarity when these games are going to be. The conference figures to be good again. You know, Georgia was a, a two-win team last year, and they're bringing in uh, possibly uh, maybe the number one pick in the draft. And Anthony Edwards is going to be – he's being talked about right now as either – one, two, or three pick in the draft. So we'll see how that goes with them. And um, there's a bunch of new coaches in the league, whether you're talking about uh, Nate Oates at Alabama, or you're talking about Cherry Stackhouse at Vanderbilt. Buzz Williams uh, obviously went to Texas A&M. Eric Musselman came from Nevada, which Florida obviously eliminated in the NCAA tournament, but he won 29 games there. He had him in the top 10. He's now at Arkansas. So uh, the coaching really, really is good in this league, and it seems to keep getting better and better. So, you know, Florida will have something, and this is something we'll talk about ad nauseum uh, heading into the season. Florida will have something it really hasn't had a lot of since Mike White's been here, and that's expectations, not just uh, positive expectations. These are going to be uh, sky-high, if not unrealistic expectations, because this is a very good team he has. I've seen them practice. I've seen how they practice. The culture shift inside the building has been amazing. If you consider uh, uh, all these new guys in there, you're talking about, Eight new guys, uh, nine if you count the walk-on, Alex Klatsky. Wow. Uh, and they're really, really talented players, some of them. And uh, Kerry Blackshear is the only senior. We're talking about uh, a freshman class of five guys with two McDonald's All-Americans, Scotty Lewis and Trey Mann. These are guys we'll be talking a lot about. Put it down on your uh, on your list, folks, uh, on your calendar. Media day will be September the 24th. First day of practice, we'll, that's, a, that's a Tuesday. First day of practice is that Friday, I believe, the 27th. And it all goes full bore there. Moving on to our PAT this week, I want to talk about uh, about circuses. We saw the Antonio Brown Circus play out over the course of this past weekend. Really, just on Saturday, in the course of a few hours, he was all in on the Raiders. He was then released by the Raiders at his request after he blasted out some stuff on social media from their GM, who himself was a TV star for the last 10 years. Uh, and then a few hours later, ends up with the Patriots and I, I don't even know what compares to that, but I'm just curious for you guys, what circuses do you remember from your careers that might rival that? Well, the closest thing I could think of would be you know, Terrell Owens and doing sit-ups in his driveway with Drew Rosenhaus having press conferences, like <laughs> like some people have uh, uh, yard sales. Right. But, uh, and then it's ironically, Drew Rosenhaus is, is Antonio Brown's agent as well. But uh, no, this this was this was different. I mean, the guy must have cameras on him all the time. Yeah, because or and microphones recording everything. He's like this reality show in in and about himself. And uh, uh, if you look at that video of, of when he found out he got released and he's and he's running. Out, I mean, he's got a camera on and as he's running out in his yard around his pool, 
when it pivots around, the camera catches another guy filming. This guy loves the drama. Um, obviously, he's a great player, a, a phenomenal player. He's from Florida now, by the way. Is that right? Yeah, he's from Miami. Oh, I didn't know that. Did I know that? Went to Central Michigan, and uh, he was from Miami. But um, you think of some of these things. The, the wide receiver position, obviously, is, is the diva position. Maybe maybe in all of sports, whether you're talking about – I'm probably going to have trouble thinking about him now, but uh, whether you're talking about Randy Moss. Uh, you mentioned Chad Johnson. Ochocinco changes his Yeah, uh, and we're in Hall. The, you got to you got to have your you know what he had his Hall of Fame jacket. Joe uh-huh. um, Horn. I go back to Sterling Sharp, who went his whole career without uh, uh, ever talking to the media, and then became like this media darling once he came out. Wonder what? Wonder what Billy White Stu Johnson like <laughs> yeah, today? Billy White Stu Johnson had some, had some media. <laughs> My goodness gracious! But uh, Tuesday morning, lo and behold, there's he's, you're reading about. Like Antonio Brown staying at Tom Brady's house. Can you, can you like, <laughs> trying to get him caught up on things? Like, hey, Giselle, I like I'm over easy. Okay. <laughs> like, what? And they're, they're doing selfie pictures of yeah, themselves. Yeah. Absolutely out of control. I, I don't have anything like that. Now, Scott dealt with some baseball players, so maybe he has something that uh, rivals this in some way. I don't know if anything really compares to this. I did see a funny tweet the other day about the whole saga something was like now the reporters who cover the raiders know how fast antonio brown is and why nobody can cover him in the nfl <laughs> i mean as the news was like if you took a nap i mean you missed maybe three or four major things you know i mean and of course we live in a different world so stories have a life of their own and and as Chris said, the guy loves to create news. But in terms of my career, you know, you got to remember I covered some bad double race teams, but they they would have high profile players every once in a while, like, you know, Jose Canseco, who you probably heard of, Greg Vaughn. And but one of their top draft picks ever was a guy named Dewan Brazelton. And uh, one of my favorite stories, a couple with him was, I mean, one year he just disappeared in the middle of the season. They didn't know where he was. And. He's one of your starting pitchers, your former first-round pick who you gave a $4 million signing bonus to, which was, you know, this was early 2000s, so it was a nice uh, amount of money. Uh, so I remember having to go on a chase for him over to where he lived and couldn't find him, and he resurfaced, and, you know, we were at Yankee Stadium one time, and he was supposed to start the first game of a doubleheader, and he still hadn't shown up like an hour before the game, and I just remember Lou Pinella in a classic moment, giving a great quote about he must have thought we were playing at Ebbets Field. I mean, he was obviously ticked. <laughs> <laughs> it just, I mean, it, that was one of the ones that you stick out because it was New York. And I probably could come up with a better one, maybe, but he's not a high profile player. But you see these things in pro sports. But Chris, we could probably go back and, I mean, can you imagine? if the O.J. Simpson saga had happened in social media time. I remember it was Friday night. I was in Atlanta, actually, at my grandmother's house. We were going to go to a Braves game that night, me and a buddy of mine. I stayed home to watch the O.J. Simpson stuff because it was so crazy. I'm like, this was, this was 1994. That's 25 years ago, man. So if that had been right now in Antonio Brown's world, I mean, man, there have been people tweeting, uh, you know, oh, we would have been looking at, you know, people at his house as he pulled up live tweet video 
If Raw knew at that time, I mean, the internet would have exploded. If the internet would have exploded. I just know I had uh, three years, four years with Keyshawn Johnson, and obviously he was on the diva list. Oh, he's probably looking at this guy going, man, this guy's out of his mind. <laughs> yeah. yeah, now he's a commentator. The weird yeah. thing is, it's really true, though, that the wide receivers are generally. They are the biggest prima donnas, yeah, yes, man. No doubt. I wonder why that is, because I mean, you could argue running backs are also skill position guys that are high profile. Uh, maybe it's because they have shorter lifespan; they don't have time to build as as much credibility up. I, I don't, I don't know how to explain that one position being so consistently diva like. I wonder because you're standing out there by yourself. You're usually in one on one situations, so you're always going to think you're open. Right. It's yeah. not like you're a running back and you're running in the line and there's there's bodies and, and limbs everywhere. Maybe for an E. I mean, that maybe that's something we could do yeah. something to talk to a sports psychologist about. Why? Why are they? And most of the time when they do make a play, it's usually a big play. It's usually. Yeah. A, yeah. And then the spotlights right on them. They get up, they do they a do dance. It. Yeah. They and dance. they get a call the next day by advertiser who wants them to do the dance for them. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it just naturally breeds, I think, in a lot of ways, the position. You know, we usually end every week in the PAT, but we do have to, unfortunately, talk about something really sad that, that happened this week, uh, and that's former Gator linebacker Neron Ball passing away, and his medical struggles became kind of the source of national news when a lot of his former teammates reached out on his behalf with his family to try and get money to help with his care, and through a GoFundMe, I think raised triple what they were initially asking for, almost $140,000, largely from Gator fans around the country trying to help Neron Ball, and it was obviously really, really sad to hear that he had passed away, and this was just a a really difficult battle he had with a a rare condition, Scott, that ultimately he wasn't able to, to beat. You know, the news did resurface after his family went public with him because a lot of people had known that he was he was struggling health wise since late last year uh, when he went to a coma. But I guess he'd come out of the coma, but was still in the hospital and wasn't able to really take care of himself. And I mean, if you saw the photos on social media that is that his family posted, I mean, it just it just struck you immediately as like it, it was just shocking. And then, you know, a lot of his you're right. They went public, and the, it was great to see how people responded. Not only did his former teammates like Jordan Reed, Jalen Watkins, but even like his new, like Khalil Mack. I mean, the the former Raider who's now Bear, he donated I think seven thousand dollars. And but the but the biggest thing was if you go back and look at that that campaign, it was just so many people donating five, ten, twenty bucks. Those were the rarities. Those players giving a lot. So. That just shows you how much people kind of connected with Nyron. And quite frankly, the reason that he sticks out in my mind after this job for so long was he was so approachable, always had a smile, just a friendly guy, had to look, had that little bit of that Georgia twang, that accent. And he, I mean, he was hard not to like. You could tell his coaches liked him, his teammates liked him, the media liked him, fans liked him. There was nothing not to like. And, you, you know, he was always a good player, but – he left here and uh, was a fifth-round pick, and I didn't know what his chances ever playing NFL was. But you know what? He actually got in with the Raiders and started a couple games, and, and then he got hurt, and it kind of derailed him. And, you know, it's just unfortunate. He's 27 years old. You just don't expect someone who you just remember as such a, a vibrant person and a, a, one of these a great athletes like Nyron to be gone so soon. Um, it's, you know, you look at the condition he was in at the end and, you just hope that uh, he's uh, he's resting easy now because it was a tough way to, to end his life. 
Yeah, really, really sad. No question about it. And obviously, we send our thoughts. The Gator Nation does as well out to his friends and his family. And uh, that's how we'll, we'll end things today. So, guys, thank you as always. And we'll, we'll talk to you next week. All right. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Adam. Injuries are commonplace in football, but at the very least, you hope they don't attack the same position group. Unfortunately for the Gators, their secondary has taken some serious hits over the last couple years, forcing other players into action. But that also gives other players a chance to shine, with Sean Davis leading that list at safety. We spoke to the Miami native about his growth and emergence on the scene, beginning with what it meant to play his hometown school to open the year. It felt great playing against some of my former teammates in high school, going against some of my coaches that coached me in high school. It was just a good game, for big game for me. So I just wanted to play hard and show what I had. How weird was that, going up against so many people you knew? Did that make it, were the stakes higher for you? What, what was that like for you? I just played it as a regular game, like just going into another game. It wasn't really a big game for me, just another game to play with my teammates. And then when you had your opener in the swamp last weekend, what was it like running out of that tunnel in the swamp for the first time this year? What kind of energy does that give you? It felt great just to set the tone going into the swamp for the first game, just making a statement and just getting um, the team ready to play big games like this upcoming week, just getting the team ready. What can you tell us about your family in terms of growing up down there, your early days? Take us back to take us back 18 years ago. Tell us about growing up down there. Well, growing up, it was um, probably all just backyard football playing with some of my childhood friends and family that's it but when I had got into playing like park football I just had a lot of support from my parents and my family so that's why it was big for me to um just keep going and being successful in football when did you fall in love with the game other than just playing backyard when did you really get into it probably like my second year of playing that's probably when I, I fell in love with football um when I was playing for um park like just making big plays at a young age it was just hype, like seeing all the fans just like cheering and having fun with my teammates and cheering and stuff with those guys. You have a reputation as being a really hard hitter, a tough-nosed player. Did you always play that way, or did that sort of come later in the process? It came later in the process. Really, all my years of, until I got to college, I was known for being a ball until I got to college. Like It was just hit, 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 and that's like what I really started falling in love with hitting. So, yeah, that's when it came about. How much has it changed, too? Because as you've kind of come along, it's been consistent with all the rule changes we've seen. So did you sort of have to learn how to hit and then constantly change as the rules kept evolving? Yeah, I I just had to, like, know, like, when to, like, hit and where to hit. Just, like, staying away from the helmet area, it was just, like, a big change for me that I had to adjust to. But it was kind of an easy change for me. Were you always interested in playing DB or were you, I mean, I feel like a lot of times great athletes from the younger, you're playing all over the field, but what, what other positions did you play growing up? No, nah, that's the only position I played. I only played, well, I actually played DN, cornerback, and um, safety growing up. And then I just started playing corner. What made you want to play defense? Why no, why no off? I feel like everyone wants, everyone wants to score touchdowns when they're growing up, right? Why was it all defense for you? I don't like just coming into football. That's why I was placed that. So that's all I just played was defense. <laughs> Now, you talked about you're always a Florida guy growing up, so Miami wasn't really a factor for you. What other schools were in the mix that were making you think about maybe leaving the, the state? Really, no schools, to be honest. Like, I knew I wanted to stay in Florida, but I didn't want to really be close to home. So this was like the perfect school for me. Now, coming out of Southridge, you also had Kimor Gamble coming to UF. So what was it like coming in and having one of your former teammates there with you as part of the same class? 
Well, actually, that was a big deal because, like, growing up, I knew him, like, basically all my life. So we were, like, best friends. So him coming with me, it was a big deal. So we just continued playing together, having some, having a bond with somebody that's on the team. That was a big part. Yeah, how helpful was that? Because I know when you're coming in and you're meeting all these new people, so much of it is new. How much easier do you feel like your transition was because you had someone there going through it with you? It wasn't a big transition. Like, when you just make the plays, the older guys just look up, look down to you and be like, oh, yeah, he's a big um, time player. So, you know, we just got to treat him with respect. So that was a big part. We just communicated with those guys, got help from those guys. They was willing to help. And we just started making bonds. So when you did come in, you mentioned the other guys being there and recognizing your talent. Who were some of the players you remember that, that really took you under their wing? Who showed you the ropes when you came in as a freshman? Um, Duke, Marcel. And that was like basically, oh, and Chauncey Garner. Those like the older guys that was on the defense at the time. And like they just like taught me things like just technique wise. And that really helped me with my game. So those guys kind of took me on the wing and taught me stuff. What about off the field? Who helped you on that side as well? Because I know that's one of the biggest challenges for a lot of players who are making that transition. Well, really, like everybody, because that's something that we do here. We just look out for each other and stuff. So off the field things, if you need to help with somebody, all you have to do is ask. Now, this is your third year. You didn't have a huge role as a freshman, but then the coaching change happens. And since then, you've really seemingly taken your game to another level. What changed for you when the new staff came in that allowed you to really start excelling? The way that we play defense, the coverages we have and stuff like that, there are like more major coverages. So you just got to you, – you really have to learn those things and play at a high level. You have to play without thinking and just play. So that's what that was a major thing from my transition to having a new coaching staff was like learning the defense quick as possible. You've talked about the impact that Coach English has had on your development. What are some of the specific things he's done that have been so helpful for you? Everything, like just me becoming a better player, becoming a better person, and my playing style. It includes like with the hard hitting and stuff like that. And he just helped me with a lot of things from me becoming a freshman to my upcoming point now. When you guys are in practice and you're scrimmaging, I always like to find this out. Who's the toughest player on the offense to defend? Who's the guy who you don't want to get matched up against? Uh, I'm, I'm not scared of no one, so I, <laughs> I'm not saying nobody. There's, there's got to be but those, someone. Those, those some, I go against, I don't even know how to put it, but those guys are tough to cover. So me getting help from those guys, sticking those guys, it really make it easy in the game for me. That's what's pretty like much helping me on my coverage, and that's staying on top of that. Hmm. Okay, so I'm, I'm not saying you're scared of anybody. Who's really, really tough to match up with? We, we won't tell him you said it. We won't tell him. I would say Van, because he's he a little shifty. <laughs> so the shiftiness is harder than the, the pure speed guys. Yeah. I got you. I got you. Because you like hitting so much, how tough is it in practice to not go out? Like sometimes you have to remind yourself, oh, I, I can't hit them all out right now. Is, is that tough for you? Actually, no, it's not tough for me because we just just give them a little thud and that's <laughs> it. Like it's 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 not hard. You know, we got to keep each other safe and stuff. So let's put it on a scale of one to ten. Ten being the hardest hit you can give. What number are you going at in practice? Nah, I'm not going high. Nah, nothing much. Probably like five. I go half. Five. Okay, that seems fair. That seems fair. It depends. Like if it's a scrimmage, then it's like different though. Scrimmage is like what seven or eight? Yeah, okay. around that area. But none of none of them ever felt ten though. You've never given any of them ten before. Nah. Okay, you got you got to take care of your teammates. I respect that. Um, when you get away from football, I know it's it's not something you have a lot of time to do. But when you do have those opportunities, what are some things you like doing outside of a uh, football? 
probably hang with friends, listen to music, relax, and play games. Who are some of your friends you enjoy hanging with? Like, when you get out of there, are you hang with guys from the team? No, just the team. Like, Marco Wilson, CJ Donovan, Gamble, and uh, Trey Dean, and those guys. What games are you guys getting into? What, what are we talking about here? Uh, Call of Duty, Madden, 2K, Fortnite, and Grand Theft Auto. Are you the best? Do you win? Or how is that? Is, like, someone better at each game, or you, do you dominate all of them? Uh, we, we go. We all pretty good. We probably a tie. Okay, that's fair. Uh, what about you say you enjoy hanging out, listening to music? What, what, what kind of music you listen to these days? Uh, I like to listen to um, Young Thug and um, Lil Herb. I don't know Lil Herb. You got me. You, you, you got me on him. one. Yeah. You got to listen to him. So this weekend is Kentucky. And last year, obviously, it was a 31-year winning streak that Kentucky snapped for you guys. So I'm curious, just year to year, have you seen a difference in the intensity level in terms of preparation and, and the focus now that Kentucky has one on you guys when for so, so long that they couldn't claim that? Uh, I don't really look at the, the streak thing because I wasn't really a part of that. But it's just I just go out there and play, just play to win and get the W. Uh, I just I don't really look at the streak. It's just going out there and dominating for, to me. That's all. Hmm. So Coach Mullen said it's unlikely that CJ is going to play this week. So if he doesn't play, how does that affect the defense? How do you fill that void with him and, and other guys that are out? It doesn't affect our defense because we got um, people uh, that's backing him up to step up and play, that's prepared to play behind him and ready to play and make big plays for our defense. In terms of preparing for Kentucky, their quarterback Terry Wilson out for the season after last week. I imagine most of the tape that you guys would have on Kentucky is of him. So how much more difficult is it to prepare when you don't have nearly as much tape on the guy that you're facing? Um, you just got to look at the other the, um, the schools that the other quarterback was at so we can watch film on him. That's it. When you evaluate film, what are you looking for that you're hoping to take into that matchup? Like, what, who, who is his main target? You got to know his main target and what he like to do, what kind of balls he like to throw, what's his best ball that he throw, and things like that. So going into this weekend, final thing for you, what, what's the plan to win? How are you guys going to go up there and get your first road win of this season? Play hard and stay focused, communicate, and just execute. Simple enough. Well, Sean, thank you very much for your time. We really appreciate it, and we wish you a lot of luck the rest of the year. Appreciate it. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to Gator Tales in the podcast app of your choice, and please leave a review to help us continue to grow. Follow the Gators and their SEC opener under the lights in Lexington Saturday night at 7 on ESPN and the Gator Sports Network from Learfield IMG College. Then come back next week as we'll break it all down. Until then, I'm Adam Schick, and I'll see you in Lexington.